Well, good morning, everyone. It is a good morning, isn't it? You bet. Although some of you look like you've been baptized in lemon juice. No, no, it's not that bad. My, my eyes are going. Um, so a guy by the name of Chad Walsh wrote uh, an intriguing book in the middle of the last century. Actually, it was in the 1950s entitled Early Christians of the 21st Century. And with, uh, I think, somewhat prophetic insight, uh, he wrote these words. Millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling in the lovely light from stained-glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing of emotional quivers, divorced from will, divorced from intellect and demanding little except lip service to a few harmless platitudes. I suspect, he wrote, that Satan has called off his attempts to convert people to agnosticism. After all, if a man travels far enough away from Christianity, he is liable to see it in perspective and decide it really is true. And then he wrote, it is much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a man with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. Um, the familiar verse of the Old Testament in Second Chronicles reminds us that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose, whose heart is fully devoted to him. In the opening verses of the passage we've been swimming in for a few weeks, Romans chapter 12, those opening verses, Paul pleads to Christians not to get vaccinated with a mild dose of Christianity, but to get the real disease, to have hearts that are fully devoted to Him. But the essence of the Christian life are hearts that are fully devoted to Him. And so he said it this way in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you really can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And we looked at these verses previously, four things that jump out. One is the very essence of Christianity is the presentation of ourselves, of our bodies as a living holy sacrifice. That's a fully, wholly devoted heart to God. Everything that we are, everything that we have, we present it to you fully uh, on the altar for you, Lord. And the motivation of that, that's the mercies of God. I beg of you, by the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice. And what's the means by which that takes place? John Morrison unpacked this for us in a marvelous two weeks of messages. It is the renewing of our mind. It's that transformation that takes place when our understanding gets in line with God's understanding of things. It's the renewing of the mind through the power of God's Word. And the end result is that we come to, to prove, it. we find it we test it and find it to be true, the, the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. So when it comes right down to it, 
God calls us to a life of worship. The moment we trust Christ as our Savior, the life of worship begins. It's our spiritual service. It's our reasonable, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's our logical, is what the word is, in light of the mercies of God, in light of the cross, in light of what God has done for us, the most logical thing is to say, here I am, Lord. I present myself to you. All that I am, all that I have, I want to live a life of worship. But what does that really look like? What what does worship really entail? And I want to just take a few moments here and uh, do a quick survey of some things related to worship. Like, for instance, you realize in the Old Testament, the words for worship are found 171 times. And makes sense. You've got the tabernacle, you've got the temple, you've got the Israelites that were called to worship God. And they would meet at the temple and, and uh, they would be worshipers of God. The first five books of the of the Bible and one fully like Leviticus is devoted to how to do temple worship. 171 times the concept of worship is referred to in the Old Testament. You come to the Gospels and you realize that that word, the Greek word for worship is found 26 times. And then you go to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and the word for worship is found 21 times. But now here's the interesting thing. If you look at the epistles, it's found once. The writings of Paul and Peter and John, in all the uh, epistle literature, it's found one time. 171 in the Old Testament, 26 in the Gospel accounts, 21 in the book of Revelation, one time in the epistles. Like, what's going on here? What's happening? Well, in the past, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel came out of Egypt and God brought them up there to that Mount Sinai and gave them instructions, explicit instructions, of how to worship Him, how to to meet with Him. And they built this tabernacle. And God gave all those specific details of this is how I want it built. And and there were to be this, uh, there was to be this uh, Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim, and, and God says, my glory will be there. And sure enough, God's brilliant glory came into that inner sanctum, that holy of holies, and, and the high priest, of course, once a year, was the only person who could go there. But all the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, were all surrounding that tabernacle. There were three tribes on the north, three tribes on the south, three tribes on the west of it, three tribes on the east of it, all focused in the central thing was this, was this system of, of worship because the glory of God, it was His throne, that Ark of the Covenant. It was the place where God met His people in the Old Testament. Psalm 99 kind of reminds us that the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. That was his throne. That's where God dwelt. Verse 5 says, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Or verse 9 says, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. There was a place to worship God. It's at my footstool. It's, it's, it's at my throne room. It's, it's there at the temple, the, the tabernacle and then the Solomonic temple that was built. 
on my holy hill. That's where you worship me, says God, a specific place where he would meet his people because the glory of God was there. Now, you come to the gospel accounts, and John chapter 1 writes that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? And we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Wrapped up in a human body was the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. It was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who'd left His throne, and, and He came to earth and veiled in flesh the Godhead see, who's the sing at Christmas time. But it was the glory of God that He tabernacled among us. He lived among us. And, and sure enough, the disciples saw Jesus walk on the water, and what did they do? They bowed down and they worshiped Him because He was in their presence. He would heal the, the blind man or the, the cripple, and, and what did they do? They, it says they fell and they worshiped Him, even the, even the demons we know who you are, the Holy One of God. And when Jesus was here on earth, the glory of God resided in him because he was God and people worshiped him. But even Jesus said to the woman at the well one day, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain where the Samaritans worshiped or, or in Jerusalem where the Jews worshiped, Will you worship the Father? A day's coming. It's not about a place, ultimately, said Jesus. There is a day coming when the place will be irrelevant. Now you jump to the future, the book of Revelation, 21 times the words for worship are used. For instance, chapter 5, verse 14, the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Or chapter 7, verse 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they, they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God. Why? Because they're in heaven. That's where God was, and the glory of God in heaven and His presence. And we get to heaven one day, we'll be in the presence of the Lord, and for all of eternity, we will worship Him in His presence. But what about now? What about the present? Jesus was right. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers are going to worship me a different way in spirit and in truth. The Apostle Paul said it this way, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? that you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. A new temple. A new holy of holies. And it's anyone who puts their trust in Jesus as their Savior. The moment we trust Jesus as our Savior, the moment we rely on what He did for us, he died. He paid for our sins. He rose again. And He offers the free gift of eternal life. And without working for it or earning it in any way, by simple faith, we receive that free gift. And in that moment of receiving that free gift, the Bible tells us that 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords, takes up residence in our life. Don't you know that your body is a temple? And it's the very concept of the, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, that which was the throne room of God in the Old Testament, that which will be worshiped one day in, in, in glory, resides now within every believer in Jesus Christ. We are a place of worship because Christ dwells within us. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was manifested in that, that temple and people worshiped. And a day's coming when his presence will be there in glory and, and we'll join with the saints and we will be in his presence and we will worship. In the Gospels, when Jesus walked the earth, his presence was amongst the people and people worshiped him. But now... It's a startling fact that in the epistles of the New Testament, there's very little instruction about how to conduct a worship service. In fact, the concept of a worship service isn't even mentioned in the New Testament, in the epistles. Oh, there's instruction about that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, that there's this assumption that God's people do gather like we're doing here, and we express to him our, our gratitude, we sing our songs, we hear the teachings of the Scripture. And so there is directions in the epistles of how we are to um, conduct our gatherings together, but the concept of a worship service isn't found in the, in the New Testament. Think of that. So, so what are we saying here? You surveyed the Scriptures and the formal use of the terms, the terminology for worshiping God, you've got it in the Old Testament because His presence was there. You've got it when Jesus walked on earth because He was there in bodily form. You see it in the last book in Revelation in heaven because we'll be in His presence. But in the epistles, God's visible presence is not seen. There's no visible glory to bow down to, is there? And so in the early church, they begin to view worship like Jesus had taught it. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 1. I beseech you, I beg of you, Present yourselves, your own bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit, as a holy and a living, a, a sacrificial offering. Because that, he says, is the reasonable thing to do that is truly worship. You know what kind of worship God wants? Do you know the kind of worshipers he's seeking that he's calling us to? It is ultimately not gathering on a particular day of the week in a particular place for a particular time and check it off as a worship service. What the Scriptures 
call us to is a lifestyle 24-7 of worship. He doesn't want our affections for one hour a week. He wants the totality of our being 24-7. He wants of us a radical abandonment to him out of a reverent devotion for him. We see in the New Testament this this deinstitutionalizing of worship, this decentralizing, even deritualizing of worship. The whole thrust seems to be taken off ceremony and forms and practices and events and again places and gatherings to do worship and it's placed on on, on the lifestyle, on the attitude of our heart. The essence of worship is, is not something done externally, defined by a location like 3217 Middle Road. But it's defined by a heart attitude that is lived out in very tangible, sacrificial ways each and every day. It's honoring God in the very practical issues of our life. How we spend our money. It's, get, it's getting up in the morning with an attitude that says, you, you paid the price. You, you bought me out of the slave market of sin. God, you shed your blood to redeem me. I have been purchased with precious blood of a lamb that was spotless, the lamb of God. Your son died for me. And so this morning as I get up and I consider my day and how I'm going to spend my money uh, or use my time or speak my words or watch through my eyeballs what <laughs> I'm going to be doing today, I, it's yours. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I am not my own. Every cent I have is yours. How do you want me to spend it? How much do you want me to give to your work? How much should I save or invest? What should I do about this? What should I do about that? How I treat my family, my coworkers. Lord, I don't want to go back and confront that person. I mean, I, I would love to give them a piece of my mind that I can't afford to lose, but I'd love to give it to them. But Lord, my tongue is not my own. You paid with your own precious blood, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, you have to control what I'm going to say. I want it to honor you. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And just like in the Old Testament, as the glory of God shone, or when Jesus walked about and they were struck with the presence of the majestic God when their eyes were open and they dropped to their knees before Him. So I'm to live my life so that the, the glory of God is exuding through me by what I say, by how I live, by my leisure time. Lord, you know, take my life and let it be. You know, the older I get, the, 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 I don't know if this fits for some of you gray-haired, but the older, older I get, the, the tireder I become sometimes. You know, the, I just don't have the energy. 
uh, you know, it's fine to preach a few sermons on a weekend, but man, I used to do that in my, well, I was going to say in my sleep, but I always did it in someone else's sleep. <laughs> but I find it's getting harder to, to study. You know, I, I spend a lot of time studying, and it takes mental gray matter, and it, it just gets to be a little slower to do that. And so I like to take more breaks in my study time. I can do maybe two, three hours, and then I just got to walk away from it. Now, here's, a, here's my personal struggle. What do I do when I walk away from it? There's a great channel on, on, uh, on some cable channels called Grit. It's, it's great Western movies, old Westerns. I love Grit. I love to turn on and watch Laramie or Gunsmoke or something like that. But, you know, I, I get a little convicted, which is why God gives us wives. <laughs> but, but I don't know, what's your personal struggle? I, every moment and the tick of the clock of our day is to be given over to Him. Lord, how do you want my time to be spent? My life is not my own. This is what Paul is saying. Present yourselves as a living, holy sacrifice. It is the most logical spiritual act of worship given the mercies of God. John's sermon last week, very powerful. It's a challenge to say, okay, so what do we do? about the issues of the oppressed, of the poor. Lord, Lord, how, how do you want to use me to engage in this world? I mean, how, how, what does it mean to be a light, to be a testimony, to proclaim truth in a, in a darkened world, to really make a difference in people's lives? What does that look like? It'll look different for you than it is for me. We go before the Lord and we say, Lord, my life is not my own. And, and a legalistic preacher would say, let me tell you how you need to do it. <laughs> no, no, no. no we, we are to go before the Lord and say, how do you want my time spent? How do you want me to be engaged in pure and undefiled religion, taking care of widows and orphans in distress? What does that look like? How do I honor God with my words, with my sex life, with my thoughts, with my labors? Just for a moment, take your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. I was thinking through Isaiah again. We went through that a couple of years ago. But Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, gives us a little insight again into the heart of God when it comes to worship. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And he's not writing to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They've been long since destroyed. But it's um, an analogy he's using of the people of Israel, of the people of Judah, the Jewish people. He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. And when you come to appear before me, who requires of you that this, this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Now, wait a minute, God. You, you wrote a whole book called Leviticus on how to do this. What is this, a bait and switch thing? I mean, you, you laid it all out. We're, we're doing it. We're bringing our offerings and our sacrifices and we're having our solemn assemblies and you know, we're watching the new moon thing and the Sabbaths and we're doing all this stuff. We're dotting our I's and we're crossing our T's. And God says, I am sick of it. <laughs> I hate your moon festivals and your appointed, your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So verse 15, when you do spread out your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And so verse 16, so wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice and reprove the ruthless and defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come on, he says, get your faith in shoe leather, live it out, but not in forms and and religious piety of your stained glass windows and your, your emotional quivering when you gather. He said, I want sacrifice of you. I want you on the altar. I beseech thee, he says. I beg of you by the mercies of God, Look at what he has done for us. I beg of you, writes Paul, present yourselves to him in true, true worship. The giving of, of the totality of all that you are and all that you have, consecrated wholly to him. God is saying, I want all of you and everything that you have because I bought you. I paid for you with my own shed blood. You are mine. A sacrifice. You know, sacrifices got burned up. They got lit on fire and the stench of burned flesh. It was, it was a constant perpetual thing in the Old Testament. Smoke always ascending, always the smell of, of burnt flesh. Always the smell of, of something that was sacrificed for God. And yet, here's the thing, just a, a little bit of an aside, but, it, you know, someone once said, we never find in sin what we go there to find, because it's always worse than what we think it's going to give us life. On the same token, we never ultimately sacrifice something that it is not returned multiple times in joy. I was listening recently to some messages by Elizabeth Elliot, who's now with the Lord. 
she was married to Jim Elliott, who in 1956, Jim Elliott, along with four other missionaries in the jungles of, of Ecuador, were speared to death, of which the papers around the world wrote about the nightmarish tragedy of the loss of these five young missionaries who left five young widows and nine children fatherless. The nightmarish tragedy to which Elizabeth Elliot wrote in her book, the world did not recognize the truth of the second clause of my husband Jim Elliot's credo, which said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. December 4th, 1857, David Livingston, the famed missionary, was speaking to students at Cambridge University, having spent over 30 years in the deep recesses of African jungles presenting the good news of Jesus and sacrificing his life through disease, the loss of his wife through disease, incredible suffering, incredible pain, the run-ins with slave traders, I mean, for over 30 years. You talk about suffering. Now he speaks at the prestigious Cambridge, and he wrote, or he said, people talk of sacrifices that I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Rather, Say that it's a privilege. Yes, there's anxiety and sickness and suffering and danger now and then with the foregoing of the, the common conveniences and charities of this life. And it does make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but, but only for a moment. For you see, all these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. Oh no, I never made a sacrifice. It, it's, it's the funny thing about the Christian life. He invites us and He begs us by the mercies of God to give it all up, reorient our life. And when we're young, in our middle age, in our retirement years, to to realize my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I am wholly, completely His. He bought me. I've been paid for with the precious blood of Jesus. Now I beg of you, writes Paul, by the mercies of God, present your life a holy, living sacrifice. It is our reasonable service of true worship. It's the lifestyle, 24-7. And if this analysis of biblical concept of worship is correct, and it is, then maybe we realize we oftentimes put way too much focus on the place of worship, the rituals of worship, the styles, the forms of worship instead of the true essence of worship, which is take my life and let it be consecrated wholly to thee. 
I think God is far more concerned about the worship service of our life than what we do in these 60, 75 minutes here. Now, don't get me wrong. What we do in these gatherings are extremely valuable. Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We are called to gather. So we corporately, collectively honor and worship God. We get our spiritual batteries recharged, as it were, and, and together we, with one voice, we honor Him and we listen to the teaching of the Word and we grow in our faith. It's extremely important. But my, 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 sometimes do we get exercised over, I don't like that song or I wish that was done or, you know, why, why was this said and why was that done? God is asking us, He's commanding us, He's pleading with, I urge you by the mercies of God, get a right perspective of what worship really is. And it's the totality of who we are offered to Him moment by moment, daily. And when we get ourselves into situations, it's the, the heart of worship that says, okay, God, I'm not sure what I'm to do here other than present myself to you, and you're going to have to help me because I want to honor you in this situation. I'm not sure how I should spend my money in this area, but Lord, I present myself to you because it's not mine, it's yours. Lord, I present myself to you and how I'm raising my kids or what I'm communicating to my grandchildren. I, I'm not sure what I should say in this situation. Lord, in my leisure time, I'm, I'm not sure. I would prefer to kind of do this, but my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. So Lord, what would most honor you the normal Christian life. God is urging us to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is not religious activities. And the main thing is our heart and our relationship with the living God. A number of years ago, I read the true account, a newspaper account of a, of a christening service in a a christening party in a posh neighborhood outside of Boston, a suburb of Boston, and the mom and dad, their, their first child, and they were inviting their relatives and the friends, and it was a fancy schmancy thing, and the guests came, and they, you know, threw their coats into the, the master bedroom and went and got their drinks and visited and chatted and talked about whatever, and then finally one person asked the mom, so where is the cute little thing? To which her heart jumped and she rushed into that, that master bedroom only to find her little child smothered to death under the coats of the guests who had come to honor the little baby. We can have a lot of events, a lot of activities in our church and in Christendom generally. We can be very all involved in things and, and smother the reality of what God is calling us to, and that is when we walk out those doors, the worship service begins. And we do not have a right to check off the box, I've now done worship. It begins when we leave moment by moment, authentic worship. As A.W. Tozer called it, the missing jewel 
in our Christian lives. And, and where does it all start? At the cross. At the cross. I beg of you, by the mercies of God, the Father who sent His Son into the world, out of a heart of love, to do for us what we were incapable of doing for ourselves. It begins at the foot of the cross. It begins by preaching to ourselves, as we often say, the gospel all the time. Being reminded, I have been purchased by precious blood of a Savior who didn't have to do it, but did it because He loved me with an everlasting love. And He died for me. And now he invites me, he calls me into this everlasting relationship of worship. He's, he's indwelt me, he's given me his presence and his power to be lived out so that I will radiate the glory of God to a world that doesn't know him. That's at the cross. Remember what Christ has done. I beg of you, wrote Paul, by the mercies of God, worship Him the way He wants to be worshiped. This morning, we will be preparing our hearts for this coming week to live out a life of worship by remembering what He has done for us. The first weekend of the month, and I hope you were able to take your pick up a little communion set here. I want to invite you to take this now and, and pull off that top little cellophane. And, and there is the symbol. How simple, isn't it? I mean, just so simple, insignificant. For 2,000 years, the body of Christ, the people of God have been taking uh, maybe a, a, a piece of bread or a crust of something or, or a little wafer of something, and they've taken it and they've held it in their hands just like you're doing right now. And then to remember the words of Jesus that night that he was betrayed, he had his disciples together, and he picked up that piece of bread and he said, this represents, this is my body which is given for you. And so do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget me. I broke my body for you. I love you. Would you take this little piece, this little reminder, and let's partake together. And then we peel back the top little foil labor, this little layer, this little cup. What is this? A, like a teaspoon of juice. So simple, isn't it not? But what it symbolizes changed the world. Christ dying on the cross on a piece of wood. And if we were there that day, that wood would be stained with this deep, dark, almost black red. It was the blood real blood of a human being, Jesus, the God-man. 
could even maybe smell the stench of a body oozing with blood. But God didn't see that, the, the piece of wood with the blood. He saw his son and the payment that he was making to satisfy his righteous demands. God, the holy God, requiring a payment for sin because he's holy for the sin of the world. And, and Jesus stepped from his throne and he shed his blood. He paid the price. And with his disciples that night, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it to remember me. Let's honor him and remember him. You see, it all takes place at the foot of the cross. He gave his life, and then he gave us his life to empower us to live out the glory of a life of worship. Is he not worth that? Infinitely so he is. Would you bow your head, please? Father, thank you so much for the amazing story of grace and mercy, the kindness of, kindness of a God who looked upon the unlovely, we sinners, undeserving, a world that had gone mad in sin and reckless abandonment of you and rebellion and with a heart of compassion and deep, deep, unfathomable love, your son stepped from the throne and came into this world and died the sacrificial payment to satisfy you for all of eternity, to offer us a free gift, undeserved, yet free. My prayer, Lord, would be that there would be no one in this room today who has not received that free gift. They're hearing it right now, and I would ask, Lord, that you would open their heart to respond in faith because that's the only thing that you require. Not our religious activities, not anything of us, not our, our worship, because we can't do that until we come to faith. You invite us into an everlasting relationship with you because Jesus did it all. And so we thank you, Lord, for the broken body, the spilled blood of our Savior, who now ever liveth to empower us and to intercede for us and to be the one that we can point people to through a life of perpetual worship. And so, Lord, truly take our life and let it be consecrated wholly to Thee. All that we are, all that I am. Father, at least I pray You would stir within us as we leave this building and this place of gathering that we would be reminded that when we walk out those doors, the worship service begins. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.